Hello, I'm Paul George. Uh, welcome to this, the first in our series of podcasts on trade matters. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of the most pressing matters uh, around the UK's future trading relationships with insights over a series of sessions like this from leading aspects in all aspects of the international trade issues that underpin a lot of these developments that, that, that we're going to be working through over the next few years. And I'm delighted to have with me uh, for this first session Sir John Grant and Phil Brown, uh, two of the leading members of our core of, of, of trade experts. We've been working through all this in the last few months. Uh, John was the UK's ambassador to the EU. Phil led the UK's trade negotiation team. Uh, so we really couldn't be in better hands for this conversation. John, if I can start with you, um, looking at the future uh, relationship with the EU, um, the government's talking about uh, uh, the need for us to really create something that's going to allow free and frictionless trade with the EU. Um, can you just sort of bring that to life a little bit, talk about what that might look like? Uh, sure, Paul, and, and um, it's a pleasure to be, to be here this morning. Uh, the, um, an exporter now exporting from the UK to the rest of the EU in terms of paperwork, in terms of the time it takes to clear customs, in terms of where the component parts of uh, the product comes from is basically doing the same as selling goods within the UK. A country like Brazil or China, for instance, in other words, a country that trades with the EU, has a completely different set of rules to follow. They have long forms to fill in. They may go through a time-consuming customs clearance period. They may have to explain in detail where the different component parts of their product comes from. So the question for British companies in future, and it's very good that the government have focused on this, is will we be able to reach a long-term agreement with the EU that means that what exporters do in future is pretty similar to what they do now? Um, that's what the ambition the government has set. It will be complicated uh, and technically difficult to achieve this, I think it's certainly achievable. The question is how long it will take. Yeah, but you think it will be possible? I think it's certainly possible. And everyone talk, talks about um, this being about a whole lot more than tariffs. Uh, people are talking about non-tariff barriers. It's quite an opaque term. Could you just bring that to life a bit for us? Yeah, I can give a couple of examples. One from within the EU, which actually is relevant to the point I was talking about a moment ago. Um, there's a very famous legal case in the EU, which goes back to the late 70s where uh, a, a German company was importing a fruit liqueur from France, a blackcurrant liqueur. And it was allowed to import that blackcurrant liqueur because both countries were in the EU, and the EU says there must be free movement of goods within the EU. However, the German regulatory authorities tried to forbid the marketing, the sale of that liqueur in Germany, on the grounds that it had too little alcohol in it. There was a German rule, I know this is difficult to believe, but there was a German rule that said fruit liqueurs have to be above a certain alcohol by volume level. And the German authorities put forward various arguments, fairly spurious arguments, to explain why that was the case. What the European Court of Justice concluded was that this was a non-tariff barrier to trade. In other words, there was no tariff on this fruit liqueur. It could be imported into Germany tariff-free, but you weren't allowed to sell it because it didn't meet 
a rule which suited German companies but didn't suit French companies. The European Court of Justice said that was illegal and it established the principle, so-called principle of mutual recognition, which is if you could market something in one country in the EU, you could market in, in another. And that led to the single market, etc. So that's an example of a non-tariff barrier. And one of the questions, uh, though I don't think this is a difficult question to solve for Britain's future relationship, will it be able to ensure that the rest of the EU doesn't erect non-tariff barriers against UK goods in future? Uh, John, bring to life a little bit about the, the process we're going to be going through. Um, how does the EU run a negotiation of, of, of this sort of a, um, a, a set of How will the EU face off against the, um, the UK? A lot of competing national interests, uh, a lot of complexity. How will, how will this run at their side and how will the process work? Uh, the EU is very used to negotiating agreements with so-called third countries. Uh, it's negotiated uh, uh, scores of them over the years. So it has an established procedure. It has a negotiator. The negotiator is the European Commission. Uh, before the European Commission starts negotiating, uh, it will get a mandate, a so-called negotiating mandate from member states. So it will, it will make a proposal to the Council saying this is how we believe we should conduct the negotiation. These are the principles we believe we should follow. Do you agree with us? Do you want to change it? Um, that mandate will then be approved. The Commission will follow it in the negotiations and where it discovers that the mandate isn't, doesn't work, isn't enough, because the UK disagrees with the point or it wants something different, it will go back to the member states and ask for a change. Okay, and, um, and, and Phil, this is a process that you've, um, you, you've, you've been involved in on the UK side frequently, I mentioned these sorts of processes. In, indeed, Paul, and again, I'd like to say that good, good to be here and have this conversation, fascinating subject. Um, yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that is at the end of the process, the Council will also have to sign this off. And if we look at the case of the EU-Canadian CETA, where we saw Wallonia holding up the agreement there, um, that was, the decision was that would be done by unanimity. And we can reasonably expect this would be the same for the EU-UK FTA. And also because of the nature of the agreement that will cover areas that are shared competency, as we call it, around labour and environmental standards, portfolio investment and other areas, this will probably need to be agreed and ratified by European parliaments too, which is a further possible complicating or at least time-consuming um, element. Okay. Um, a lot of people are talking about very long lead times in all things to do with trade. Um, when talking about six or seven years being a period some deals are taking to get done. There's also a lot of talk about transitional periods. And uh, so the first two years I'm gathering is really just the start potentially of a process. I mean, how, how do we see this panning out over that period? What should we expect to see happening in the first couple of years and what's going to be um, pushed into the more extended period in terms of discussion? Yeah, I think there are three stages, really. Uh, there's the stage over the next two years when we remain within the EU, uh, but we're negotiating our withdrawal. And then there's a final stage that Phil was talking about, which is the long-term relationship, the long-term trade agreement between the UK and the EU. Uh, and then there's a period in the middle. The government, the British government have described this as phased implementation of the long-term agreement, when uh, there will be different arrangements for different areas, there will be different arrangements for immigration, there'll probably be different arrangements for financial services, and there'll be different arrangements for trade in manufactured products because all of those have different requirements and, and, and pose different difficulties. But I think there'll be a three-stage process. And the, 
The long-term arrangements, although difficult, uh, in, in my view, uh, don't pose a fundamental problem. The open questions are around the period of phased implementation, because, as Phil says, we won't be able to get into force the long-term arrangements. The government doesn't want to go straight to the long-term arrangements because it wants to give business time to adjust. So the problem is going to be what is phased implementation going to look like? How much will it look like still being in the EU, where there are some difficult and politically controversial questions to address? Or how much will it uh, represent an interim stage, which business has to adapt to before adapting to the final stage? All of those are rather uncertain questions at the moment, really, uh, and ones that um, probably raise the hardest challenge for business in preparing because it's difficult to be sure exactly what that will look like and exactly what the impact on individual businesses will be. So there's a lot of talk around about sectoral deals um, and I've heard people saying that there are some issues with that uh, with the WTO rules and that cherry picking can be a problem. Um, could you just talk for a second about, uh, about sectoral deals and how that works in terms of the, the technical side and whether there are constraints on what the government can do? Well, let me just say th three things about that and then perhaps Phil can comment on the WTO angle. First, the government has stopped talking about sectoral deals. Uh, my reading of the white paper is not perhaps that they've dropped the idea, but that they may be approaching it a different way because it doesn't talk about sectoral deals. Secondly, why would we want sectoral deals? Uh, in, in my view, we might want them because different sectors have different requirements for the transitional period, and I don't think that that will be a problem provided we can negotiate that. Uh, but that's not really a sectoral deal. It's just phased implementation for different sectors. Uh, and secondly, because some sectors have got uh, issues around supply chains, which other sectors don't have in the manufacturing area. And the issue there is not so much a special sectoral deal with the, U with the EU, but the right kind of customs arrangements to allow supply chains to continue to work as they did before. So I actually think it's a bit of a red herring. And Phil, would you like to comment? Well, I mean, I would agree with that. I think just from a WTO rules perspective, you can't have a sectoral deal that is outside of a wider trade agreement or customs union that covers substantially all trade. So I think, I think that's right. I would just say, though, that you can dive deeper when things like regulatory issues on specific sectors. So maybe that's the sort of thing that you might have in a, in a wider FTA. Going back to those non-tariff barriers. Indeed. Phil, can I draw you back into the, um, the, the we, we've touched on the WTO a couple of times um, there. Um, can, can, can I just talk a little bit about what's involved in um, the WTO process of separating us out from the, from the EU, because that's the other process people are talking about. Indeed, and I think there's been a lot of discussion around this and perhaps a little bit of confusion in some cases anyway. So let's be clear that the UK is a member of the WTO in its own right. Indeed, it's one of the founding members. So it's signed each of the core WTO agreements covering goods, services, intellectual property and so forth. And these agreements are what sets out the rights and obligations that the EU and other members have to abide by. What we don't have, and what the UK doesn't have, is its own schedules. And these are the things that set out specifically what we will do on, for example, the level, the tariff level for beef or, or for lamb or for a certain manufactured product, or the specific terms with which a company can come and, or an individual can supply a service to the UK. Okay. 
So, um, so the, the, the issues are going to be carving those schedules up, are they? Deciding who gets what in the divorce in terms of obligations and um, quotas and subsidies, etc., that are covered in those schedules. Exactly, and you've, you've picked up on a couple of key words there, the quotas and subsidies. So in a way, take it really simply, the UK could do a copy and paste, and indeed it intends to follow the EU schedules on most issues. So most tariffs, we can just adopt the same tariff as the EU has. But those issues that you raise are going to be sensitive issues. So the EU has tariff rate quotas, which allows a certain amount of sensitive products in at a low or zero rate of duty. And we also have ceilings for subsidies related to the common agricultural policy that we can apply to support agriculture. So can we expect to see a picture that makes, looks the same overall in as a carving up of the current position as far as the rest of the world's concerned, but some fairly detailed discussions as to who gets what in terms of carving up the record collection, if you like. <laughs> exactly. And I think what we'll see is the, the UK is going to need to agree with the EU how much of the subsidy goes to the UK now, how much of the tariff rate quota goes to the UK, as well as with other members who are benefiting from the current arrangements. So that's going to be quite detailed. It's going to be quite sector driven uh, in, a, in, in the sense of uh, some are going to be more driven than others. I mean, which sectors do you think need to be watching this most closely? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we're not talking about that many individual products here. We're talking about less than 100 products overall, of which most are agriculture. So beef, butter, sugar, citrus, fruits are really sensitive um, issues, for example. So maybe I could illustrate that with a specific example of lamb. So the EU's tariff rate quota for lamb is approximately 280,000 tonnes. So 280,000 tonnes of lamb can be imported without paying any tariff. Outside that amount, the tariff is up to 13%, plus additional charges depending on the type of cut, so, so pretty high. Now at the moment, in practice, that quota is shared out amongst over 10 countries, including countries as diverse as Argentina, Norway, Greenland, and of course New Zealand, which has about 80% of the EU's quota allocation. Now each of those is going to have a keen interest in how the EU's tariff rate quota is cut up, and they'll certainly not want to be any worse off. And other WTO members may too believe they have a claim, especially if the UK and EU can't agree a preferential arrangement between themselves, in which case they would need to expand the quota to cover EU-UK trade, including trade across the UK-Irish border, which is of course currently tariff-free. Yeah, there's a lot of detail there, isn't there? Yeah, and that's just one, that's one issue. And that's, that's, this is probably where we're going to see the complication on these specific issues for specific companies, uh, countries. Sorry. And how, with all that complexity, presumably um, a lot of the effort will just be to keep this overall as sort of simple and coherent as possible and avoid getting into a, 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 a ton of detailed discussions. It, exactly. And what the UK is rightly aiming to make it as simple as possible. And they're trying to make, agree the EU schedules by form of a technical rectification, which means just rearranging what's there already, just a formal character. So it's not subject to a, a line by line negotiation, apart from, as I've already mentioned, these issues around the tariff rate quotas and subsidies. Um, so to, just to draw this together, um, can I ask both of you, just standing back from this, there's, there's an awful lot going on. What should businesses be focusing on now? Phil, perhaps you go first. Well, let me just start at a high, a high WTO level. I think we've established that we're not going to have sector-specific deals, although they may be part of a wider FTA. And I think we've also established that there are certain issues and certain sectors, so we talked about LAM, that may, there may be particular sensitivities in the WTO contact. So companies working in those kind of areas should look very hard at their sourcing countries and their supply chains. John? Yeah, I think there are two main things. The first, of, first of all, we've talked about the long-term uh, UK-EU free trade agreement. The government will be negotiating that over the next 18 to 24 months. Those negotiations will start this year. 
uh, companies need to have a very clear idea of what is important for them in the outcome to those negotiations so that their interests can be protected for the long term. Uh, the second point is around this question of phased implementation. That long-term agreement won't be in force in two years' time. We'll need some kind of transitional arrangements when the, we leave the EU. There must be a risk, and indeed the government have recognised the risk, that it won't be possible to negotiate satisfactory arrangements. They've said uh, no deal is better than a bad deal. Uh, while hoping for the best, companies need to be prepared for those arrangements and understand what it would mean for them in terms of regulatory burden and tariffs to revert to WTO rules. So our time's come to a close. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. Uh, it just remains for me to thank you, Phil and John, for a really interesting conversation. Uh, to thank you all for listening. Watch out for our next podcast in the series very soon. Bye for now.